thank you so much. It's good to be with you once again. Praise God. Hallelujah. You're allowed to say hallelujah here, I believe. Praise the Lord. Well, as you've heard, I'm interested in speaking about prayer. To be specific, I'm interested in the Lord's Prayer. And uh, maybe you'd like to turn to it in your Bibles. It's in Matthew chapter 6, also in Luke 11, but uh, I'm looking at the one in Matthew chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 6, famous Lord's Prayer. Although, let me go back a little bit to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Let's begin in verse 5, if you have your Bibles. Jesus is speaking. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. He's telling us to not do our righteousness before each other, but before God. And he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by other people. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, the Greek word is singular, when you singular pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or you could translate, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I have come to immensely admire this amazing prayer of Jesus. I haven't always been that way. I'm embarrassed and ashamed to say I've never really been a great Lord's Prayer person. That, that embarrasses me a bit, but it's true. I think mainly it's because I grew up as an Anglican. When I was first a Christian, I was an Anglican. And uh, if you're a loyal Anglican, you say the Lord's Prayer four times a day. Did you know that? You say it in the morning prayer, and you say it twice. It comes in twice in the morning worship of the traditional Anglican. And you say it again twice in the evening service. And if you're a good Anglican, you're meant to say the, Lord's, the uh, morning offices and the evening offices every day. You pray the Lord's Prayer four times a day if you are a loyal, faithful Anglican. And uh, I was never very enthusiastic about that. I, ne- I was never very enthusiastic about prayer books and uh, written prayers. So over the years, I've not been a great Lord's Prayer person. But I say that with some embarrassment because over the last uh, six months or so, I have come to think that this prayer is the most amazing thing in the Bible. It is the most incredible prayer. I kind of fell into it by accident. I was preaching in Nairobi Cinema. I preach there every Monday and every Thursday evening when I'm in Kenya. And I was preaching there, and I was preaching a series on working out your salvation. And I got to various things, living the godly life. And then I thought I ought to preach on prayer a bit. So I thought I ought to preach on the teaching of Jesus. And so I began, I went to the Lord's Prayer and I began preaching on it. And I went on week after week after week for six months, twice, twice, a, twice a week every time I was in Nairobi. And the more I pondered this prayer, the more amazed I have been. It's, it's a, the most incredible prayer. What I want to do tonight is to introduce it. I won't, I won't be able to go through, it, through it, all of it line by line. I went through it in Nairobi, about three sermons per line for many months, but um, I won't be able to do that. But uh, I want tonight to introduce it to you. I just want to talk about it generally. What is this Lord's Prayer? And if I can inspire you to meditate day and night on this Lord's Prayer, well, I would have achieved something of what I would like to do. But uh, what, what is this Lord's Prayer? Here is Jesus talking about prayer and uh, He begins just by talking generally about the way we should pray. 
We're not to be ostentatious in our praying or pretend to pray more than we are. We're not to try to impress God by our beautiful language or our many words. Prayer is just talking. If you can talk, you can pray. It's just talking to God in the name of Jesus, coming by the blood of Jesus. It's not very easy to pray. Prayer is the biggest battle there is. In fact, if you have never found prayer difficult, then you've probably never prayed in your life. Prayer is difficult. It's not difficult to talk, but it's to to step into the presence of God. And now that God is hearing you, having your prayers answered, so that you know that God is taking notice of you. There's there's nothing greater than that. I was very encouraged many years ago, I was reading Luther, the great Martin Luther, and I was encouraged, he was a very prayerful man, he would pray three hours a day, at least. He's a very prayerful person. And I was very impressed when one day I saw in the writings of Luther that Luther found it a great battle. He would say, even to begin to pray, it half kills you. A great battle to even begin to pray, said Luther. That encouraged me because that's the way I feel as well. <laughs> it was nice for me to know that Luther had the same kind of feeling. Why is prayer such a battle? I think one reason is because the devil doesn't like it. You can, you can talk to your friends, be chatting away for an hour, and you go away and you want to pray, and, and within a couple of minutes you, you've got a kind of resistance and you can't, you can't sort of pray very easily. You give up quite quickly. You've been talking to your friend for an hour or so. Or you can read your newspaper for half an hour, and then you try to read your Bible. Within a few minutes you don't quite feel like it. Why, why is it? You've just been reading for half an hour. Why is it that now suddenly when you read your Bible, or you, you, there's a kind of cold, wet, dr- dr- uh, cold, wet cloth, as it were, thrown over you. You don't feel quite in the mood. Well, it's, I believe it's because of the devil. Satan does not want you to pray, I can tell you that. It is the most dangerous thing for the devil, for God's people to be praying. And it's the heart of the Christian life. What you really are in the Christian life is, is what you are when you pray. The size of your church, I, I sometimes say this to pastors, it's a very embarrassing thing to say, but I sometimes say to pastors, the size of their church is the size of their prayer meeting. You can have a church of 2,000. And I can think of churches I know with a couple of thousand people in it. And you go to the prayer meeting, it's about 20. What's the size of the prayer meeting? 20. What's the size of the church? 20. The other, the other 1,890 don't count very much. Oh, I think I've got my arithmetic wrong there, but anyway... <laughs> The size of your church is, is the uh, size of the prayer meeting. The others are not really achieving very much. It might be uh, nice to see them in church on Sunday, but you're not really affecting and doing anything in the kingdom of God unless you're a person of prayer, and the size of your church is the size of your prayer meeting, which uh, reduces the number of many churches. But uh, here's the great thing, and Jesus comes to, to tell us how to pray. He doesn't give us, there's a lot of things he does not say. You notice he says nothing about how long we should pray for. Doesn't say pray for half an hour a day or anything like that. Doesn't say anything about posture. Doesn't say get on your knees or close your eyes. Incidentally, nobody in the Bible closes their eyes to pray. Have you ever noticed that? It's a kind of tradition we've got, but it's not in the Bible. Nobody in the Bible closes their eyes to pray. But uh, or we raise our hands like some Pentecostal or some charismatic. The Bible never tells us to do that. Doesn't tell us any of those things. They're not terribly important. We could say a few things about them, but they're they're not the big thing. Big thing is, is what you pray, the content of your prayer. And the biggest thing of all is whether God takes any notice. God doesn't take any notice of your praying. Well, what's the good of your praying? The big thing is whether God hears you, whether God takes any notice. So Jesus wants to talk to his disciples about prayer. What, so all I want to do is introduce it. What then is this Lord's Prayer? Well, I, I want to describe it in a number of ways if I say everything but I want to say, if I squeeze everything in, then I have about six things, I might not finish, we'll see. But I would say, first of all, that the Lord's Prayer is the heart of prayer. It's not so much a prayer list, I've often described this as a prayer list, which I suppose is right, but it's much more than that. It's, it's the heart of prayer. If you want to know what kind of thing God wants you to be saying, if you want to know what is your spirit, what is your heart. What is your attitude to, to the Lord as you come to pray? This is it. It's the heart of prayer. That you want God's name to be glorified. You want his kingdom to come. You want his will to be done. And a few other things that we'll, we'll mention. 
but it's the heart of prayer. The important thing about prayer is, is the spirit, the heart. It doesn't matter very long, matter very much how long you pray for. Nice, nice to be disciplined and give some good, solid time to praying. But that's not the big thing. You can sometimes achieve more in praying in five minutes than somebody else in five hours. It's not, it's not the length of time. It's the reality and the zeal for God and your passion for the things that God wants. These are the things that God wants. God wants his name to be glorified. God wants his kingdom to come. God wants his will to be done. You, if you've got a passion for the very things that God wants, ah, there's something of God's power in your praying. So I would say it's the heart of prayer. I would think that it's a very all-inclusive prayer. One of the most amazing things about this prayer is that you see more in it every time you come back. Every time you come back, you see see something you've never seen before. A very rich prayer indeed. I think one of the things that would really convince you that the Bible is the inspired word of God is, is, is contemplating and meditating upon this prayer. Because as you see one thing after the other, it is so amazing that you start saying to yourself, this has to be the word of God. That no, that, that no man, no person, no human being, no woman, nobody could possibly have put these things in with such genius, such profundity. And I'm going to try and show you what I mean by that. Nobody could have, could have done this except by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the more you, as it were, ponder these things and see what this Lord's Prayer is, I think the more you will come to believe that this is the very inspired Word of God, item by item, clause by clause, almost comma by comma. This is the written, inspired Word of God, word by word. It's the Word of God. You may not say that to begin with, but uh, this is one of the great things of the Bible. This is one of the ways in which you come to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. As you work through Scripture, you see it as an ancient book, maybe, to begin with, but then you see how profound it is. It, talk, it talks to you about yourself. It tells you that you're a sinner. Maybe you don't like it very much. But as you go on, you find it describes you so perfectly. It is so deadly accurate that you think, hey, this, this is no ordinary book. This is how you come to see that the Bible is the Word of God. It is so amazingly profound and so accurate and as you get into it and see what it's saying, you, you may not notice it to begin with, but the more and more you see what Scripture's saying, the more you say, this has to be from God. There's a kind of depth of understanding here that, that, that couldn't come in from anywhere else. It has to be from God. And that is supremely true, I believe, of this Lord's Prayer. It's amazingly all-inclusive. It covers everything that's important, as I hope to show you, or hope to get you to see a little bit. And then I would say not a new thing, other people have said it before me, I would say that the Lord's Prayer is in the new covenant, the new relationship that we have with Jesus, what the Ten Commandments were in the Old Covenant. I'm not the first person to say that. The furthest back I know of anybody who said that was, was John Calvin, the great Swiss reformer of the 16th century. He would say, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, or the, or the Lord's Prayer in the New Covenant, is the equivalent of the Ten Commandments in the Old Covenant. And I believe that's quite a profound observation, and I'll try and show you why. Think about the, the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments all about? Well, they are everything that a nation needs. The Ten Commandments didn't come into being until the point where Israel became a nation, where the people of God became Israel a nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, these, these old saints in the Bible, they never had the Ten Commandments. Might, might surprise you to say that, but if you think about it, it's true. People like Abraham didn't have the Ten Commandments. When Joseph was being tempted by Potiphar's wife and he said, how, how can I do this great thing and sin against God? How did he know it was sin? He hadn't been reading the Ten Commandments, that thou shalt not commit adultery, he didn't exist, hadn't been written. So how, how did he know that the flirtations of Mrs. Potiphar were not a good idea? Well, he knows by the Holy Spirit, he knows by the Holy Spirit, he's got a conscience. He, feel, he feels in the presence of God, there's no way he can do this thing. It's not written, there's no law, there's no legislation. He knows by the Holy Spirit, he's walking in the Holy Spirit which is the way in which we walk. We're not to be walking under the law. We're not under the Mosaic law. We're to walk in the Spirit. And we too should know these things, even whether we, whether we read them in the Bible or not. We should uh, feel bad when we come anywhere near sin. 
So they didn't need the Mosaic law when they were one by one relating to God in the Holy Spirit. They didn't, didn't have the, the law, they didn't need it. But when Israel became a nation, and all sorts of people were in this nation, some of, some of whom were not even saved at all, some of them were not believers, they, they, the first generation were the first, first generation all came out of Israel by faith. And uh, Hebrews 11.29 treats the whole nation as heroes of faith. But that didn't last more than one generation. One generation later, remember how the Bible puts it, not all are Israel who are of Israel. You're, you're, you're not a, a true Jew just because you descend from Jewish people. Not, not, not everybody is truly the Israel of God with faith in their hearts just because they descend from the nation. So there are people who are Jewish but they don't have the faith of Abraham or any interest. Not all are Israel because they descend from Israel. And as the nation goes on, there are kind of mixed multitudes. Some are believers, some are not. Some are regenerate, some are not. And the, and the more the nation goes on, the worse it becomes. And the fewer are the true people of God. And the remnant, the elect remnant, is smaller and smaller and smaller. Time Jesus comes, there's hardly any believing Jews at all. It's just a handful. And so Israel was a mixed nation of saved and unsaved people. And at that point, at the point where Israel becomes a nation, and Moses and the, and the various kings and so on are ruling a, a mixed nation of spiritual people and unspiritual people all lumped together in one nation. At that point, Ten Commandments came in. And it's mainly to control a nation, and keep a nation fairly moral and fairly upright. It wasn't given to anybody except Israel. Have you ever noticed how the Ten Commandments begins? It begins, I have redeemed you out of Egypt. It wasn't given to the nations. The Bible says the nations are without the law. That's what the Bible says to those who are without the law, and those who are with the law. Other nations are without the law. They weren't even given it. Why was it given to Israel? It was given to keep them alive, to keep them existing as a nation. Remember the Canaanites, the, the nations that lived in Canaan, were wiped out. Why were they wiped out? They were wiped out because of their filth and their wickedness and their degradation. God allowed them centuries but finally wiped them out. That would have happened to Israel if there hadn't been something to restrain Israel. They were restrained from sin out of fear of punishment. There were terrible punishments if you broke the law. The death sentence if you walked a couple of hundred yards on a Saturday. You broke the Sabbath, you were liable to the death penalty. You hit your parents in anger, you were liable to the death penalty. That makes you respect your dad a bit. So the law was, as it were, controlling morality. And so what was needed to control the nation was with these Ten Commandments. Only one God was allowed in the nation. It wasn't allowed to be multi-religious. There was no freedom of religion in ancient Israel. Indeed, you could be executed if you, if you worship some other god. The nation had to be free from idolatry. The nation had to view God in the right way and not try to represent God in an image. Actually, we are in the image of God. We are meant to be the image of God. You don't make an image, you are an image. You, are, you, you yourself are meant to be the image of God. You're not meant to, to misuse God's name. You're meant to his character. You're meant to know what God is like. He meant to God, give God time. Old day was there for the worship of God and you were to keep it. So that was a way of keeping the nation to be a religious nation, worshipping only one God, viewing him in the right way, not, not turning to any idolatry, giving him time for, for a day's worship in, in the week and so on. It was to keep the nation, a religious nation, a nation at least nominally, at least in some sense, knowing that God is there, and they are God. It doesn't mean they were all born again or regenerate or that they were spiritual people. They weren't, it was not necessarily true. But they all had this kind of external religious morality. The law kept them that way. And then there were six commands, or another five, plus one more, that dealt with the various areas of life. The fifth command, you shall honour your parents protected families. It upheld family life in the nation. You shall not murder upheld the sanctity of life. You're casual about life and uh, easy abortion, easy euthanasia. I, I see that Belgium is discussing a law where the children under, under 12 should be allowed to commit suicide. 
Guess what that does for a nation? This casualness about life. And you take life very lightly, very easily. Israel was not allowed to do that. It preserved, the law preserved the sanctity of life. And anybody who was casual and careless about life taking, he was subject to the death penalty himself, lost his own life. And you shall not steal the sanctity of property. You can't have stealing if you don't have property. How can you steal if nobody owns anything? You can only, you can only have theft if you have ownership. Isn't, isn't that true? And Israel upheld the right of property. It didn't allow all territory to be owned by the state. It upheld the rights of property. You remember King Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth answered, the king, it's illegal. Even you, the king, can't do that. And Naboth could not lose. He wasn't even allowed to. It was illegal. He couldn't even sell it if he wanted to. It was illegal for him to let somebody remove the property from the tribe and the clan. It protected property. It stops the rich from getting richer and richer and richer and the poor from getting poorer and poorer and poorer. You have a land where the poor keep on selling things to the rich or they get poorer because they lose their property and the rich get more and more property. Then they start renting the property and the poor start paying the rich rent. That's a bit crazy, isn't it? The poorest of the poor paying paying rent to the richest of the rich. What's happening all over our world. Years ago, 40% of our world owned about 60% of the world's goods. And a few years later, 30% of our world owned about 70% of the world's goods. And a few years later, about 20% of our world owns about 80% of the world's goods. And then about 10% owns about 90% of the world's goods. Today, I would think about 2% of the world owns 98% of the world's goods. Where does that lead to? Tell you, it leads to slavery. It leads to a handful owning all the rest. It leads to slavery, which is growing fast in our world. Slavery is growing fast in our world. But in Israel, none of that was possible. The law blocks that. It prevented, it, it protected land, it banned stealing. If you stole something, you, you returned it four, five, four times over. It protected property and rights and kept, kept the poor from being desperately poor and prevented the rich from being disgustingly rich. It kept a certain amount of equality in the, in the land. The Ten Commandments were what Israel needed. Now, the sanctity of marriage. No people were not allowed to commit adultery, the death penalty was applied, at least in theory, whether it ever happened is another question. But uh, in theory, marriages were not allowed to just break up easily because of the looseness of people's morals. And then the sanctity of the law courts. I think we often misunderstand the ninth command, you shall not bear false witness. I think we often think it just means telling the truth. That's not quite the point of it. It's upholding the law courts. If you want a land to survive, there must be justice in the law courts. And you are not allowed to bear a false testimony in the law courts. You're not allowed to be, to, to be a false witness in the legal system. And, and the stability of a country has a lot to do with justice in the law courts. If the law courts are, you, you are corrupt, you are in trouble as a nation. And so the Ninth Commandment upheld the credibility of the legal system. And then the Tenth Commandment came in with a bit of a surprise. There's a bit of a surprise in the Tenth Commandment. All of the, every commandment in the, in the Old Testament law was actually obeyable. You, you could obey the law. You could not steal, not lie, not commit adultery, worship one God. You could obey it up to a certain point. Ah, but there was one thing you could never obey. And that is to have a heart that never wanted anything it shouldn't want. And the last command said, don't even want these things. Not only don't steal, don't even want your neighbor's husband or wife or car or Mercedes or ox or ass or anything that's his. Don't even want something you shouldn't want. And that tells you that even though you've got all of the law, you still haven't dealt with the problem yet. You need salvation. You need something that changes your heart. And all the, all the laws of the Bible can't change your heart. The Tenth Commandment tells you you need a new heart. There was a kind of sting in the, in the tail, as it were. There was one command you could not possibly keep. And you remember, Paul said, I had not known sin if the law did not say, you shall not covet. 
the law hadn't said that, said Paul, I wouldn't have felt very sinful. I kept all the rest. I didn't steal or lie. I committed adultery. It's touching the law. I was blameless. I was, I was beyond criticism in every other area. But when I came to that, uh, if the law had not said you should not covet, I would have been all right. But when he said that, the law killed me and made me know I needed a saviour. So the law was what Israel needed to keep its stability in the land, obey your father and mother, because you will live long in the land. It kept national stability. It kept the land, the nation, lasting a long time, unlike the Canaanites who were wiped out because of their sinfulness. So the law was what was needed for the stability of the land of Israel. But I'm arguing, following Calvin and John Stott and a few others, I'm arguing that the Lord's Prayer is what the Christian needs. The Lord's Prayer is the very heart of everything that the Christian needs. Notice, the Lord didn't ever tell you to pray. There's nowhere in the law where it tells you to pray. Did you notice that? The Lord never tells you to pray. These, these unsaved people, not to be committing adultery or stealing or lying, they're not, they're not even godly people anyway. The Bible's just restraining them, not telling them to pray. Ah, but when you come to the, the New Covenant, the first thing is, don't do your righteousness before other people. Go and live in the sight of God. And when you pray, pray like this. And there's another, another few commands for you. But now, they're not commands about general morality. They're commands about seeking God and knowing God personally. They are the equivalent in the new covenant of the law in the old covenant, as people have sometimes noticed. And they're, very, they're rather similar in structure. Have you noticed that? There's a certain structure in the Ten Commandments, and the same structure is in the Lord's Prayer. The Ten Commandments begin with God. I am the Lord your God who redeemed you out of Israel. And the, te- and the Lord's Prayer begins with a description of God. Our Father who art in heaven. They both begin with approaching God and seeing who God is. And then they both deal with God himself. The law, the first four commandments, deals with God. Don't only worship one God, don't honour his name, don't make an image of him, give him time. And the Lord's Prayer begins with God. You're starting to pray, and the first thing you pray is, is, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. It begins with God. When you start praying, you're not even thinking about yourself, you're thinking about God. That's similar to the Ten Commandments. And then it moves on to human needs. You should, you should honour your families, your morality. Don't steal people's property. It deals with, with people and their need. And so does the Lord's Prayer. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our, tra- our trespasses and rescue us from the evil one that we are facing as we step into the future. It, it, it has the same structure. And like the Ten Commandments, it's concerned with the name of God. Don't, don't dishonour the name of God, said the Lord. Hallowed be your name, said the, said the Lord's Prayer. It's got the same concern about the glory and the honour of the character of God. So the structure is a, is a bit the same. And yet, the, the, the Lord's Prayer is not just producing general morality. It's bringing us into the presence of God, telling us how to relate to God himself. So it's the equivalent of the... Ten Commandments, and it's the, the, these little things here, these little sentences, they're short, aren't they? These short little sayings, your kingdom come, your will be done, they're very short. These short little exhortations telling us how to pray are the commands of the new covenant. If you have these things upon your heart, this is more than not committing adultery, this is, this is more than not stealing or not lying. Those things are taken for granted. Not that you can steal or lie now, it doesn't mean that, but it means that those things, those things are, are, are sort of way, way behind you. you. You do those things. Of course, you take those things for granted. People sometimes say, oh, is the Christian under the law? And surely, maybe the Christian's under the Ten Commandments. I would answer, no. Not because you're free to break them, but because you vastly outstrip them. You go vastly beyond the Ten Commandments. That the Ten Commandments. Are you, are, are, you, are you so low in your morality that you're just concerned about not killing anybody and not committing adultery very often? I mean, are you, are you as low in your morality as that? 
Oh no, you're meant to be pure in heart. You're meant to want to see God. You're meant to want not even to get angry. You're meant to love your enemies. The Old Testament never told us to love our enemies. It told us to kill a few. I mean, if any Canaanite comes along, he's not allowed into the temple and you even kill him. You can even be guilty of sin if you don't kill him. Some things in the law will be sin if you committed them today. You remember King Saul got in trouble because he would not kill a Canaanite. Canaanites were sentenced to be to, to death. They, they were such disgusting people. God was wiping them out of existence. You kept the law. Well, things that that were demanded of you then would be sin if you did them today. You meet some Canaanite today, you better be nice to him. No, no, the law. That, it's, a, it's a low level of of morality. It's all right, but it's a low level. Of morality. We're meant to go vastly higher than that. We're meant to love our enemies, people that don't like you. You pray for them as if they were your best friends. That, that's, that's higher than the law. That's not in the law. You do good to those who badly use you. You keep your heart clean. Not only do you not commit adultery, you keep a pure, clean thoughts life. You keep your heart clean. That, that's going beyond the law. And of course, under the law, you were all right if you never got caught. If you committed adultery under the law, the law didn't touch you if you didn't get caught. Only if you got caught that the law might be applied to you. You, you, you stole something or told a line of law called, but you didn't get caught, nothing happens. And the Lord didn't give much forgiveness. Remember, David committed adultery, but he said to God, you desire not sacrifice, else would I give it to you. There was no sacrifice for what David did. If you really sinned, the Lord couldn't help you. There was no sacrifice for killing somebody or committing immorality or disobeying your parents. There was no sacrifice for those things. The only thing David could do when he sinned so badly was to forget the law and go straight to God and ask for mercy. In other words, the only thing David could do was to act like a New Testament Christian. That's what you do as a New Testament Christian. You really sin, nothing you can do about it, except go straight to God and ask for mercy. That's what David did when he really sinned. He acted like a New Testament Christian. Forgot the law and went straight to God. Now, the commands that we're under, or the exhortations that we are under, is supremely to pray and to get to know God personally and to get to know God ourselves. So it's this amazing prayer, it's the, you, you want a kind of law to be under, be under this, be under the, the summons to pray and to seek God. And, and the Bible's telling us, Jesus is telling us what kind of heart and spirit we ought to have as we come. The next thing I want to say to you in this, in this connection is that this Lord's Prayer is extraordinarily logical. It is the most logical thing, as I We'll try and show you. This is why I say that uh, you, you cannot meditate upon this prayer very long without seeing that it's just inspired by God. It's a, it is the most extraordinary thing. In fact, if you've said the first two words, you don't really need to say anymore. If you have said, Our Father, everything else follows. You don't even need to bother to say it. Let me tell you what I mean. So you, you come and you say, Our Father... But if you have a good relationship with your father and you really love your dad, whether it's an earthly father or your heavenly father, if you really have a good relationship and you know that, that you've got a good father even in an earthly way, what is it that you want for him? If I were to talk to my, my, my sons, Galvin, Kerry, and, and ask them what would they want for me, I, they might well say, you know, dad, I hope you do well in life, hope you're really honoured, hope your preaching is appreciated, hope your church really honour you. If you really have a good relationship with your dad, you want him to be honoured, do you not? You don't, you don't want people to criticise him or despise him. And so, logically, if you say, how father, the next thing you want to say is, I hope you really are honoured and respected and, and uh, people admire you. I don't, dad, I don't want you to be criticised or despised by people. Once you know that God is your father, the first thing you want of, for him is for him to be honoured. And if you want God to be honoured, well, how is God honoured? Well, the way in which you honour God is he wants his kingdom to come. That's what God's trying to do. So if you're honouring God, the next thing you want is, is you want his kingdom to come. 
And so if you call him your father, you'll want him to be honoured. If you want him to be honoured, you'll want his kingdom to come. If you want his kingdom to come, what, what is his kingdom coming? It's his will being done. You see, everything follows. You only have to say, our father, all the rest follows. And this doing of God's will, who is it who does God's will? Who are the people who, who do God's will? Well, it's the angels, they do God's will, but they're, they're not doing very much in any visible way. They're here. I hope they're enjoying the sermon, but they're, they're here. But you don't see them, and you're not, but they do God's will. You don't need to pray about that. The only people who really are here to do God's will is, is you and me. Even Jesus is not here in his body. Jesus in his body is, is in heaven. He may be here by the Holy Spirit, but he's not here physically. He's not walking around Israel, preaching and teaching and healing people the way he used to be. Even Jesus has left his world in that sense. So Jesus is not doing God's will in that physical, bodily sense here in this world. The only people who are the servants of God physically and bodily and literally in this world is you and me. And so if you're praying your kingdom come, the next thing you start praying about yourself, because you're the one who's going to bring in the kingdom. Once again, it's perfectly logical. And if you're praying for yourself as the one who brings in God's kingdom, what's the first thing you need? The first thing you need is to stay alive. You pray for your daily bread. You may be puzzled, but as you pray for yourself, you put daily bread first. But actually, it's perfectly logical. You're not going to serve God very much if you're starving. You're not going to serve very God very much if you've got no daily bread. The first thing you need to do is to stay alive and be basically provided for. Otherwise, how can you be much of a servant of the kingdom of God? So the first thing you need to pray for, if you're praying for God's kingdom, that the only person who's going to do God's kingdom is you, and the first thing that you need is to stay alive and just be here, capable of surviving and doing things in God's world. So you pray for your daily bread. You pray for the most ordinary, basic thing you need to be happy and contented and able to do things here in this world. Oh yeah, but the only trouble is, even if you're being kept alive and given daily bread, that you're a sinner. You've done all sorts of things you ought not to have done. How can somebody like you do God's will? Even if God gives you daily bread and keeps you alive and provides for you, yeah, but you've got it your copybook, you've done things you ought not to have done, you're a sinner. If you're ready to do anything for the kingdom of God, the next thing you need is you need your past to be washed clean. You need to say, forgive me, my my trespasses. How can I? How can I be your servant? How can I bring in the kingdom of God? How can I be an agent of the kingdom if, if I've got sin in my life, which is getting in between me and God? And so, the, the, the first thing you need is to stay alive. First thing you need is daily bread. But the next thing you, ha- you need, if you're going to be able to serve God, is for your past to be cleansed and washed away. I believe, and that's not the end of the story, because as well as the past, you've got a big enemy out there in the future nice to have your sins forgiven, but the devil's still there, and you're still trying to do things, and you've got a great enemy, and you're likely to fall again. But you better not pray only for the past to be cleansed and washed away, and your sins to be forgiven. You better pray that God will protect you from the evil one who's still there as you go out into the future. And do you notice that that covers the present, the past, and the future? What you need right now is daily bread. What you need for your past is forgiveness. What you need for the future is protection. It covers everything. That's why I say it's such an amazing prayer. Your presence, you need to stay alive. Your past, you need it washed. Your future, you need protection. It covers everything. Once you've said, our Father, everything follows. Once you've said, you're my Father, the next thing is, I want your name to be honoured. And I want your name to be honoured by your kingdom coming. And what your kingdom coming will, be, will come by your will being done. And your will is going to be done by me. And I need to stay alive, so you better give me some daily bread. And I've got a bad past, so you better forgive me. And the devil's out there, so you better protect me. And then your kingdom will come. That's what I mean by saying, this Lord's Prayer is incredibly logical. Nobody could have written it except God. Nobody could have produced it except Jesus. No, no human being could have had this depth of and profundity of understanding and know how to put all of this in such a short little prayer. How amazing that such a, a little, short little prayer that you can say in, in 30 seconds could be so packed with amazing wisdom and incredible inspiration coming from the Lord. But that's still not finished. I think it's even more wonderful than that. I've come to see, it took me some time, but I, but I saw it in the end, that this little prayer is, is that like a, an entire description of the Christian faith. Every Christian doctrine that's in, of any importance is here in this Lord's Prayer. 
The doctrine of God is there. It begins, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And those are the two extremities of the doctrine of God. The two things you need to know about God is, on the one hand, he's incredibly holy and pure and clean. On the other hand, he's your Father. And those are the two extremes of the nature of the character of God. That though he is so holy, there's no, how can he possibly be your Father? But on the other hand, he is. And everything else is, as it were, in the middle. His graciousness, his gentleness. It's all, it's all in between his holiness and, and, and his fatherly love. It, it's, it's got the heart of the doctrine of God. It's got the doctrine of creation in it. We pray, give us that today our daily bread. Why? Because you're the, you're the creator. You're the one that makes daily bread. You're the one that provides daily bread. You're, you've got control of everything. When we need daily bread, you're the one that we turn to because you're the Lord, you're the creator. The doctrine of creation is there. The doctrine of man is there. Why do we pray, forgive us our sins? Because of who we are. We're made in the image of God, but we've fallen and we've sinned. Everything is there. The doctrine of salvation is there, this forgiveness there by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the teaching about salvation. Faith is there because we're coming to our Father and trusting him, the teaching that we are saved by faith, that's there. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is there. And in, in Luke's version, it's not here in Matthew, but it's in Luke, the Luke, in Luke's version, the Holy Spirit is the answer to, to the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever noticed Luke's version, he says the same thing, has the same requests and petitions in Luke chapter 11. But then after he's finished with the Lord's Prayer, he says, you must pray this way, because if you then, being evil, know how to answer prayer and know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does the Heavenly Father know how to give the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the answer to the Lord's Prayer. When you're praying, your kingdom will come, how, how will the kingdom come? Except by the power of the Spirit. When you're praying, your will be done, how, does God, how do you do God's will? By the power of the Spirit. When, you, when, you, when you're praying for a sense of forgiveness, how does the sense of forgiveness come? Except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the answer to the Lord's Prayer. And when Jesus finishes all of this prayer, he says, yeah, yeah, because God will uh, will do all this, because if you, being evil, know how to be good to your children, the Father knows how to answer all of these things by giving you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the answer to the Lord's Prayer, says Jesus in in Luke's version of this amazing prayer. It's not the same occasion, but it's the same prayer on a different occasion. This Lord's Prayer has the future, the doctrine of the future in it. Where's our world going to? It seems to be wandering all over the place. Oh no, I can tell you where it's going to. It's going to the day when his kingdom comes. It's going to the day of the Lord when fully and totally and finally his kingdom comes. Every single thing that you need to know is here in this prayer. The entire Christian faith is tucked away somewhere in this prayer. And so what that means is that when you pray, you're praying in the light of the entire Christian faith. When you pray, you, 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 you know everything, ideally, you know everything you ought to know about the gospel. You know that God is there. You know who he is. You know he's your father. You know, you know he sent Jesus. You know Jesus died for you. You know you must trust him. You, you know that you can get your sins forgiven. You know there's such a thing as the power of the Holy Spirit. You know that there's such a thing as the church. Have you noticed the word I does not occur in the Lord's Prayer? It's not, it's not forgive me my sins. The word I and my do not come in the Lord's Prayer. It is we and us and our. The church is in the Lord's Prayer. You're not praying just for yourself. As you pray, you're conscious that you're part of the people of God. You're not even praying just for yourself. You're praying, your kingdom come, give us, give us our our daily bread. You're not just praying for yourself, praying for the entire church of Jesus Christ to be adequately and physically provided for as they do the work of God's kingdom. And you pray that our sins might be forgiven. You want every single Christian everywhere to feel the forgiveness of their sins. You're praying for the entire church. You're, pr- you're, pray- you're praying that, that, you, that we, our we might be protected from the evil one. You're praying the entire church may be so protected by the power of God that they achieve God's will and achieve God's kingdom here in this world. The doctrine of the church is there. It's not, it's not a narrow-minded, small, self-centered, individualistic prayer. In fact, you don't even pray for, you, for yourself alone at all. You pray for yourself as a member of the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. You're asking that God will bless us and bring... To, his kingdom through our being empowered by the Holy Spirit and protected from the evil one. The doctrine of sin is there. The doctrine of Satan is there. 
the enemy is described. He's the evil one, and he's the obstacle and the opponent of this coming kingdom of God. What an amazing prayer it is. I believe, you may say, should we recite the Lord's Prayer four times a day like the Anglicans do? Well, I used to be an Anglican, now I'm a hyper-Anglican, I think I pray, pray it ten times a day these days. But I believe it shouldn't come at the end of our praying, I believe it should come at the beginning of our praying. It's good to recite the Lord's Prayer. The reason why it's good to recite the Lord's Prayer is it's good to know it by heart. We should know it by heart, of course most of us do. It's a very common prayer. But uh, it's good to know it by heart. As we come to pray, there are certain things, before you even begin, there are certain things you ought to, as it were, remind yourself of. Here they are. As you begin to pray, the first thing you need to know is, I'm praying for God's glory. Your, your name be, be hallowed. Like, this is what I'm meant to be doing in the next 15, half an hour, 15 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is. I'm praying for God's glory. I'm praying that God's, God's kingdom will come. That's what I'm about to be doing. That should be at the beginning of your prayer time, not the end. It's not something you tag upon the end. It's what you do at the very beginning, because these are the things you're meant to be remembering as you pray. And so you recite the Lord's Prayer, not because it's just reciting a prayer, but because as you pray, you're reminding yourself of all the things you need to remember as you start praying. You need, you need to remember, as you're getting into prayer, you need to remember you're praying that God's kingdom might come. You're praying that God's glory might come into this world. You're praying that the things that God might want come to prevail and his will gets done just as the angels do his will in the heavenly kingdom so that we do his will here in this kingdom. You need to know you need to pray for your daily bread. I like that. It's nice, isn't it, that God should put something very ordinary in the Lord's Prayer, praying for our daily bread. We're allowed to pray for things that are ordinary. They say, Lord, you know, I, I want to pray for spiritual things, like daily bread. You know, I don't pray for daily bread. Oh no, you better pray for ordinary things. You might find yourself hungry, and then you will pray for, for ordinary things. Pray for ordinary things. Need a bit more cash. Pray about it. Don't be greedy. Don't, don't, don't demand to be a millionaire. But go and tell the Lord you need some more cash. You need some daily bread. Go and pray about it. You need friends. Pray about it. You're lonely, pray about it. You're sort of restless in life, pray about it. You need to know some sense of purpose and goal. The ordinary things. Pray about them, pray about ordinary things. Nothing's too ordinary for God that you shouldn't pray about it. Pray about anything. If you do pray for ordinary things, I'll tell you something you'll discover. You will discover that God is extraordinarily generous. You start praying about something and you think, you know, Lord, give, give, me a, give, me, give me a bit more cash. Suddenly, not only do you get a bit more cash, you're richer than you ever thought you'd be. I'm not saying you should exploit that, but it's true. I remember once being in India and I was tired. I was so tired. And I sort of half prayed. You know what it is to half pray? You know, you don't even pray at all properly, but you just wish God would do something. It's a kind of half prayer. And I was sort of saying, obviously, the Lord would give me a holiday. I was due to travel from Pondicherry to Ranchi up on the Chinese border. And I was tired. I thought, oh, Lord, I wish you'd give me a holiday. A holiday for me is being in some nice big city with lots of coffee shops and bookshops. I went to the airport and uh, got my plane from Pondicherry to, uh, to uh, New Delhi to Ranchi. And I got to New Delhi, the plane was a bit late, and I got to New Delhi, the, my, my connection had been cancelled. And they sent me along to customer services, and they said, we're so sorry, you know, you've missed your plane, and you're not going to get to where you're going for another day. But, you know, what we've done is, we've, we've, given a, we've got a, a luxury taxi for you, it's going to take you in town, put you into a big hotel, all the coffee shops and bookshop, bookshops are, we'll send you on to Ranchi tomorrow. Hope you don't mind. <laughs> Haven't you discovered, you know, when God answers a prayer, even a little whisper, he can be so good, he can be so generous. You need a bit, a bit of a break, pray for it. You need a bit of bread, pray for it. You need a friend, pray for it. You need a husband, pray for it. Him. <laughs> I remember preaching once on Seek ye first the kingdom of God and God will meet all of our needs. Some guy came to me afterwards, he said, he said, Pastor, this, this meeting all of our needs, does it include a wife? And I said to him, brother, if you need a wife, it even includes a wife. 
Something you need, your daily bread, ordinary things. Something that just keeps you sane in life. Something that, that even, even a, a hobby you need because you, you need a, a break occasionally. Holiday. You're allowed to pray for ordinary things. And you pray for forgiveness. You need a clean heart. You need to feel acceptable to God. You need to know out there you've got an enemy and you pray for protection. And you go forth in the name of God. The Lord's Prayer. There's nothing like it. Meditate upon it. Learn it. Begin your prayers with it. Don't end your prayers with it. Begin your prayers with it. Because these are the things you need to know as you pray. You need to know something about God's glory, God's honour, God's kingdom, God's will, God's willingness to meet your ordinary needs, his willingness to forgive you, cleanse you, wash you clean, his ability to protect you as you go forth in the name of Jesus, ready to serve him in his kingdom. What an amazing prayer. Read it, meditate upon it day and night. You'll come to believe that it's totally, absolutely inspired by the Holy Spirit, that no one could possibly have written it it hadn't been for the amazing inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Jesus as he was teaching his people. Let's stand and let's pray as we finish our service tonight. Our Father, we thank you so much that you are in heaven, that you are the Lord, that you are the King, and we want to have this hunger in our hearts where we desire your kingdom to come, we desire your glory, we desire your will. Put this prayer into our heart. Put this prayer into our praying. Thank you that we can pray for such ordinary things, daily bread and finances and friends and comfort and health and things that we need just for ordinary life. Thank you that we can be forgiven, utterly, totally, completely washed clean from guilt and shame. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Forgive us our trespasses and we want to forgive everybody else so they all feel the same way. Deliver us from the evil one who's out there as our enemy. Teach us to pray. Teach us to meditate day and night upon these amazing things here in your words. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Praise God.